Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Really exciting day today with my guest, sports agent extraordinaire, Lee Steinberg. And if you've never heard of Lee or you've never been a part of the business of sports representation, this guy is the man. He is the godfather. He is the king. He is the man who's done it all and an incredible story of the rise, the falls, the rise again. And I know you're going to love this podcast. I'm really, really happy he's here. It's taken me a long time to get him here, but it's worth the wait. And as always, I want to thank all of you so much for listening, supporting the show, subscribing, telling your friends, It means the world to me, and I will never stop saying it. Big, big things are coming to the show in the next few months. Unprecedented interviews that I know will change the face of how you look at the entertainment business and the journey and how to get where you want to go, but also the stories of some of the most powerful, unique, and extraordinary people in our business, extraordinary interviews, and I'm glad you're here to experience them and share them with your friends and family as you have. Thank you. And as I sit here and look across from Lee Steinberg, I can only think of what it's like for somebody to reach the highest highs, the lowest lows, and come back so strong and powerful. And Lee Steinberg is a guy that's done that. He's experienced everything in this career. He has done things that no other person has ever done. He started his career in an unprecedented way, representing people when he had nothing. He had no office. He had no place to go. 
He had no apartment of his own. He went out there and he walked the walk and he talked the talk and he believed in himself and he made it happen. And he turned an area of his house where he lived with his family to a business that sold for $120 million. And the way he did it and the way he created relationships with athletes and had a unique bond with them was an unprecedented way of doing business in his field. And he changed the way people represented people. He changed the profession based on trial and error and the things that he believed from how he was raised and how he grew up. And to become one of the most successful people in the world at your profession when you're starting zero, zero with nothing, that story is invaluable and it's amazing. But also the story that's invaluable and truly, truly incredible is the story of how a man who had it all lost it all and had events happen in his life through addiction and through fate that tore his family apart tore his relationship with his wife apart in certain circumstances that were beyond his control had him lose his house that he built his whole world around and family and to be able to lose it all and come back and be in a situation where people bet on him now and believe in him and to represent more great talent and great athletes and to be as respected as you were from when you started. It's an incredible feat. And his story is one that I can't wait for you to hear. But I can tell you this, if you can figure out a way to not worry about starting anywhere, whether it's at your kitchen table, in your car while you're driving Uber, or whatever it might be, as long as you believe in yourself and you have the principles of how to make business work and get things going and you're able to create momentum, all you need is that first client, that first gig where people can see the work that you do and you can go in and blow people away and then word gets out and you'll be in a situation where you'll get the next client and the next client and you won't be in that Uber anymore and you won't be in your house anymore. And even if, God forbid, you lose your way and you create a situation through addiction that destroys your family life and your professional life, know that with the proper help and if you just get out there and just say to yourself, listen, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired and I'm going to take the steps to make things better, people respect that. And people will give you another chance. Not everybody, but most people will because they know you're trying to be proactive to get the train back on the tracks. And if you can figure out how to do that, along with everything else I've talked about that Lee Steinberg has done, I can guarantee you that you'll have an opportunity to have the kind of career that he has. 
Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. I am very, very happy and excited that you're here. And my guest, Lee Steinberg, is here and sitting across from me. This means a lot to me. This is a man that has inspired me throughout my life, and he's going to inspire you. So without further ado, let's introduce him. Lee Steinberg was born and raised in Los Angeles by his parents, who were a teacher and a librarian. He's best known as representing many of the most successful athletes and coaches in football, basketball, baseball, hockey, boxing, golf, and many, many other sports, including the number one overall pick in the NFL draft. Lee was so successful that he had the number one pick in the NFL draft for an unprecedented eight times in conjunction with 62 total first-round picks. Furthermore, Lee has represented two of the most successful boxers of all time in Oscar De La Hoya and Lennox Lewis, as well as multiple Olympians and professional teams. With an unrivaled history of record-setting contracts, Lee has secured over $3 billion for his 300-plus pro-athlete clients and directed more than $750 million to various charities around the world. He has received commendations from Presidents Reagan, Bush, and Clinton. Lee has been named Man of the Year over a dozen times, he has also been awarded the keys to the city in San Francisco, Memphis, Jacksonville, and Concord, California. His efforts to save the Giants led then-San Francisco Mayor Frank Jordan to declare Lee Steinberg Day in the City in 1994, and then-Oakland Mayor Ella Hugh Harris utilized Lee as a consultant in a successful bid to prevent the Oakland Athletics Baseball Club from relocating. Steinberg also served as co-chairman of the Save the Rams committee in its attempt to keep the franchise from leaving Southern California, and was incredibly active in the pursuits to attract football franchises to relocate to Los Angeles, as they have this year. Steinberg is often credited as the inspiration for the Oscar-winning film Jerry Maguire, starring Tom Cruise. In addition to receiving a production credit for the movie, Lee also consulted on features such as Any Given Sunday, For the Love of the Game, and Arliss. He has been featured on national television programs such as 60 Minutes, Larry King Live, Fox News, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, and many, many more. Additionally, has supplied his expertise on the business of sports and athletics for the Dan Patrick Show, Jim Rome Show, The Herd with Colin Cowherd, and multiple other radio and TV outlets. Lee contributes a weekly column to Forbes, The Huffington Post, and The Daily Pilot, while occasionally contributing a guest column to The New York Times, 
Sporting News, and Yahoo Sports. Steinberg wrote a best-selling book, Winning with Integrity, providing incredible insight on how to improve life through non-confrontational negotiation. Furthermore, Lee's most recent book, The Agent, My 40-Year Career of Making Deals and Changing the Game, details his decades of dominance in the sport industry and sheds light on overcoming his personal struggles to launch his comeback. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome an incredible honor, one of the most groundbreaking people in the sports agency business, and a man who has faced the ups and downs and come back with a vengeance. Please welcome my guest today, Lee Steinberg. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. I have so many things I want to ask you, and your life is like an open book. A lot of people's lives aren't like that, and you are an incredible inspirational story of the highs and the lows and the highs and the lows. It's like a roller coaster ride of success. The first question I want to ask you, which I'm always fascinated by, which athlete that you represented is most similar to your personality and your trajectory through your journey in the business? I would think that would be Warren Moon, who played at the University of Washington, went to Canada for six years, and then broke into the NFL where he played for 17 years. But basically, we sort of grew up together. And um, both of us have a passion for trying to make a positive difference in the world. Uh, both of us love people. Uh, both of us have a uh, sense of humor. Um, and. I think in terms of of an athlete that would embody those qualities, it, it was Warren. So we have the ability to talk already understanding what the next person's going to say. So I think energy moves throughout the world and ours got bonded. Where did you find Warren Moon? Take me through the moment before you didn't even know Warren Moon existed and how long was it before you had your first meeting with him and how did you navigate through all the great white sharks in the ocean to get in front of him and when you did get in front of him knowing that all your peers were also in front of him what do you think it was about you that made the difference? Well, I was always aware of Warren because we went to the same high school in West Los Angeles, Hamilton High. So I knew he was a star at the high school level and then had followed him to the University of Washington. So when his senior season ended, he had just won the Rose Bowl. He was a huge hero in the Seattle area. Uh, I contacted him about getting together. Uh, normally, an athlete will have a screening committee of some sort uh, when they come off the college campus to help them uh, delineate what the right agent is. Explain so, to our audience the typical individuals who would be in the screening committee beside the mother, the father, 
and the coach of the college and maybe the coach of the high school. Who else would be there? Well, typically, it would go through the father or mother, and they would set up some system. They might have a family friend, a lawyer, an accountant, and they'll do meetings which are screening with uh, some larger group of agents than eventually they'll decide on. And so they then would cut it down, cut it down, and all the rest of it. Uh, my philosophy was role modeling, that an athlete can retrace his roots and go back to the high school, collegiate and professional community, high school scholarship fund, or a church or a boys and girls club. At the collegiate level, those alums are primarily interested in the schools through the football and basketball uh, programs. So um, we worked to set up a link there. Uh, Troy Aikman gave a million dollars back to UCLA. And then at the pro level, I challenge each athlete to find some cause they would like to tackle. And then we'll set up a charitable foundation, which has the leading business figures, political figures, and community leaders in that pro city as an advisory board and then execute a program. So I would have talked to Warren about all of that. Let's say Sam Darnold says, Lee, I followed you my whole life. I've always wanted to be represented by you. I love what you've done. I love everything about it. I want you to represent me, but I'm not giving 10% of my salary to charity. Will you represent me? I would have uh, difficulty going forward with that because I think your work is an extension of your own values and a sense of self-respect, living in a nurturing family, being part of a community that uh, understands their obligations to each other uh, is what I think is important. And if an athlete's unwilling to do that, unwilling to give of himself, doesn't understand the critical uh, opportunity they have as role models to trigger imitative behavior, um, every time you represent someone, you cut up a little bit of your life to share with them. And uh, so from my perspective, if an athlete's not interested in those same uh, goals and aspirations, then uh, they can find an another agent. I would lay that out. I would talk to Warren about how Warwick Dunn, the running back for uh, Atlanta and Tampa Bay, just put the 161st single mother and her family into the first home they'll ever own. Uh, or how Derek Thomas dealt with dyslexia in Kansas City and, and learning problems. So, And I would give Warren a vision of who he could be. He's a quarterback, which is the uh, new celebrity, new uh, highest profile person potentially in the country because of the popularity of pro football. I mean, 45 million people play fantasy uh, NFL football. It's very often the three of the five or five of the 10 top rated shows on commercial television are nighttime NFL football. That means not only is it the most popular sport, it's the most popular form of entertainment we have. So I would talk to him about his role and his legacy. I would also talk to him about his ability to network. So the enemy in all of this for an athlete is self-absorption. You know, The enemy of every artist and athlete is self-absorption. 
The difference here is that the athlete is going to be done with his career uh, by the time he's in his mid-30s. So the need to go on for second career uh, and to have something fulfilling is key. The key to all this, Barry, is my ability to draw Warren out, to uh, peel back the layers of the onion, People think it's suasion that's the key to life, where actually it's listening. So with Warren, I'll ask him to delineate a set of values, short-term economic gain, long-term economic security, family, geographical considerations, um, high profile, uh, making a difference in the world, and then the sports concepts like being a starter, being on a winning team, the quality of coaching. So for every human being, that constellation of values will fit differently. One thing you said, which was fascinating, geographical considerations. On any given Sunday, you had quarterbacks in half of the games that were playing that Sunday. When you have a first round pick who's a quarterback, there are no geographical considerations. You're beholden to who has the pick. So that's a system. But what my job is, is to get inside someone's heart and mind to understand their deepest anxieties and fears, greatest hopes and dreams, and be able to see the world the way they see it. If you've got that skill to be patient and perceptive enough to try and understand below the surface what another human being um, has as their goals, values, uh, what their personality is. You can navigate your way gracefully through life. It's the key to recruiting. It's the key to negotiating. It's the key to interaction. It's fundamental for a romantic relationship or any kind of relationship. We go on the surface so often, especially it won't come as a extraordinary surprise to the uh, women who are listeners here that men don't share quite as easily their deep emotional feelings. So if I'm dealing with male athletes, my job is to emotionally bond with them, to understand in your hypothetical who Warren Moon is as a human being um, and what he ultimately wants to do. So while you're right that the draft is a restrictive system that stops young people coming off college campuses from doing what their peers can do, which is choose on whatever basis what they'd like employment to be, the draft's not the end of the story. So an athlete may well have the chance to factor in something like geography when they're a free agent. So it's important to understand that anyway. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. 
I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I would argue that out of all the people that you know in your professional life, less than 5% have figured out how to navigate their life gracefully from start to finish of their professional career. Even Tom Brady, who's known as the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL, presumably by many experts, there's always times and things that happen. Forget the flight gate. No matter how many conversations you have throughout your life, your wife goes on a talk show and says, oh, Tom's had concussions. And she gets back home and you can visualize the conversation. Honey, we've talked about this. We don't talk about our business. But then the agent comes out with the thing, well, Tom has never, ever been diagnosed with a concussion. But the point I'm trying to make is even the person who people look as a deity, like Tom Brady, still hasn't been able to navigate that way. How many people in your life do you know that's been able to do it without any flaws in the system? I think that a mature view of life is that people are... Uh, have frailties and will uh, at times uh, act in a way or, or speak in a way that maybe um, th they wish they hadn't. And so there's a concept called restraint in pen and tongue, which is to think for a few seconds in this world of incredible social media where Twitter and, and Snapchat and Instagram uh, convey information. So my job is to make sure that the athlete understands the universality of that, that there's no longer speech you can give in a small town that stays in the small town, that that, that momentary anger that or resentment that someone might have does not need to be expressed and shared with the entire world. Tell our audience the first time an athlete that you represented went off the rails, even though you'd had the conversations, you prepped them like every other athlete, you always did. And your first experience with damage control, how far in were you in your career? Obviously, Steve Barkowski was your first client, and that guy was like a model citizen. Right. Well, it happens uh, constantly. Probably Barkowski getting married in a way that his relationship with his first wife lasted all of three months um, and played out publicly because here was this amazingly handsome, uh, charismatic first pick in the draft um, with incredibly high profile and the football crazy south. And then the news about the divorce breaks out. Um, probably most people would, when they commit to marriage, have the concept that more than three months will Listen, be speak for yourself, Lee, okay? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Let's go back to Warren Moon. So okay. you're a young guy. You're his age. Yes, you have the lineage. You know him from high school, but he knows when you smoke pot in the bathroom. And so he's meeting with you and the other people he's meeting with don't know that about him. They don't know the things that he doesn't want people to know. And the people that you're meeting with, uh, other people who you want to sign, they don't know about 
your indiscretions. So how do you land the guy knowing that you're coming in and you're like, hey, I don't represent anybody, but I'd love to represent you and I'm the perfect person for you and I'm going to make you more money than that other guy that has 27 years experience. That guy will never take care of you as well as I can. How do well, you convince him of that? So I'm not going to tell him I'm going to make him more money than anyone else. I'm going to tell him that I'm going to help him be more fulfilled and to get closer to what he defines as his uh, life goals. What if his life goal is to make the most money possible? And that's not a good goal, but I'm just saying, let's say it is. Let's make the assumption that every human being in life would like to be well paid. I happen to have been uh, raised by a father who never mentioned money when we were growing up. He had two values, one treasure relationships, especially family. And the second was try to make a meaningful difference in the world and help people who can't help themselves. So I was hardwired to try to make a difference and help people. And money was a secondary consideration because I had a father who was a teacher and had turned away from restaurants. Um, so I have carefully pre-screened the athletes we talk to, looking for things in their background that might show that they will be terrific role models, that they understand the power they have to trigger imitative behavior and make a difference. So when I helped the heavyweight boxer Lennox Lewis, uh, we had him cut a public service announcement that said, real men don't hit women. And that could do more to permeate the perceptual screen that young people put up against authority figures. They don't want to listen to their parents. They don't want to listen to uh, a teacher. But a big macho athlete can deliver a message which has got the power to do more about domestic violence than a thousand authority figures ever could. Or Steve Young and Oscar De La Hoya, uh, prejudice is foul play. So uh, it's important that athletes uh, understand that. If I couldn't show them a path to the draft that was going to help them get drafted as high as possible, uh, they wouldn't listen to the philosophy. If I couldn't tell them, look, I've done 62 first-round draft picks in football and the very first pick in the draft eight times, um, and we have a methodology and a system to help you get drafted as high as you can by understanding the right things to do in scouting. And if I hadn't done wadzillions of dollars of contracts, that might fall on deaf ears. But given the fact that, that I have been able to do that in different sports and we have been able to maximize contracts, that then gives us the ability to take an athlete farther in respect to to understanding the power they have. Um, television brings their visage larger than life into every home. And right now there's a love affair going with pro football, college football. And, uh, uh, but I would talk to Warren Moon about a concept like bullying. So kids get bullied on high school and middle school campuses, and they get their whole self-esteem shattered. Well, what if we took uh, pro and collegiate athletes, had them work with high school athletes to be the purveyors of tolerance, not bullying? Given the food chain in a typical uh, 
high school, it's the athletes who are on top. So they have the power to change the culture in a uh, community, and especially in a high school. They can change that. We can use sports to roll back climate change uh, and trigger imitative behavior on on that front. We can use it to to cure all sorts of societal ills. So you're meeting with Warren Moon. You presumably have no real office. Well, have no I, real staff. I had a very. Um, plush and sumptuous office in the card room of my parents' house in West L.A. When it came down to it, was Warren talking to you and saying, listen, Lee, I love you. I've narrowed it down between you and this one other person. And obviously they have more experience than you. Uh, I'm leaning towards them, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to tell me why I shouldn't go with this guy who told me this, 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 and this. And he's had this many number one draft picks and he's well-respected and people love him and he's beloved by the people in the world. And you're not in this world yet. Tell me why I need to make that decision and not go with that guy. So this process plays out over a period of time. There are, more phone calls from Warren to me or vice versa. And gradually we build a relationship. Um, he goes out to all the experts. He, he, at that point, he went to a writer from the LA Times who covered football. He went to alums. Uh, so he's got plenty of input. It's also a guy who had just done a couple of years before the biggest rookie contract in the history of football and has done contracts since. But this is about, Barry, emotional bonding because I've always faced the IMGs and CAAs and uh, different agencies in our new construct that not only represent athletes but do marketing and motion pictures and television and have got infinite resources. Um, but what they don't get is that emotional bonding. So at a certain point, um, Warren's going to think about who he wants to call when he has a question about the draft. And he's going to say, you know who I'm going to call? I'm going to call Lee Seinberg. And the reason for that is that I've shown him enough expertise uh, in terms of, of navigating all this, that he's um, happy. So if I can't emotionally bond with him, you're right, on the surface, we don't get that player as a client. But I'm going to figure out how to speak to his inner self in a way where I sketch a vision that's so compelling for him that that meets all of his dreams. And I'm going to show him in a practical way how we're going to achieve that. Take us through the phone call you got with the good news. Well, I thought after that process, I probably could have been um, confirmed for Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense. Young men grew old, uh, winter turned to uh, spring, and still Warren, Warren had not made a decision. Um, and uh, But it felt organic it felt like we evolved into that position and when you get that phone call 
it's ecstatic, it's joyful, it's um, resurgent and rebirth and the start of a new journey through life, and uh, it's, uh, it's a very exciting time. The draft itself probably surpasses it, draft night, in, in <clears throat> total explosion of uh, emotion. Um, so does winning a Super Bowl, and so does what I'm doing uh, tomorrow, which is watching players inducted in the Hall of Fame. But these are all high moments. Kenneth Easley is Kenny Easley played at UCLA. He was your client. He's being inducted to the Hall of Fame. Yes, tomorrow. And then Jerry Jones goes into the Hall of Fame, and I started with him back in 1989 with Troy Aikman. And at that point, Jerry had bought the team. He was from Arkansas. There's something going on there, Texas and Arkansas. And he fired Tom Landry, an, uh, an iconic coach. He fired Tex Schramm, a iconic executive. He fired Gil Brandt. And uh, he was sort of despised by people there. So I got the unique opportunity when we visited with Aikman to sit with Jerry from about midnight to about six in the morning talking about what this world of pro sports could be if people were imaginative. In every profession, if I want to find the best doctors in the country, I can find more than six or seven. Why is it in the profession of the NFL and professional football, there are 30 spots and at best five are extraordinary, maybe six in the world why is it so hard to find people who can fill this position who are extraordinary? It can't be more difficult than brain surgery, and there's more than six great brain surgeons. And they can never make a mistake, one mistake, and they're gone from the profession. Quarterbacks can make mistakes. So, Barry, the play of pro football changed from when you and I were young. Uh, then it was mostly run the ball and occasionally pass. Now it's a pass-first game. And so the quarterback position has become uh, elevated to a level of importance and the ability to play that position. Uh, it's a quarterback-centric game. The problem is this. Um, it's a deathly difficult position to play. It's not just the physical talent, it's complex plays, it's field vision, and the rest of it. So in the development and maturation of young quarterbacks, um, there's been a flaw in how they coach him. They take a quarterback, and the game elevates from the collegiate level. It's much faster. The players are much better. The the offense is much more complex. And what happens is, as you go through that elevation, um, there are defensive players who sack the passer so quickly. So it's a matter of spending time on the field. It is impossible to win in the, the contemporary NFL without a franchise quarterback. And let's define that as someone you can win because of rather than with someone that you can build around for 10 to 12 years, and most importantly, someone who in adversity, they've thrown two interceptions, the crowd is booing, the center's looking at the quarterback like he's on hallucinogens. Um, now what do you do? 
So it's the ability to, in adversity, to elevate your level of play, adopt a quiet mind, tune out all extraneous stimuli, and live in that moment and be able to elevate in that moment. What happens is young quarterbacks get thrown behind inferior lines. There's the expectation there'll be instant successes and they are busts. And they wouldn't be busts except we have this infinite world of criticism that now plays out over television, talk radio, uh, every part of the internet. So, um, we're rushing to judgment on these young quarterbacks, and the quality coaching is not uh, good enough. I have a quarterback this year, Patrick Mahomes. You really helped him tremendously. He moved up in the draft. The guy wasn't projected to go number 10, but something tells me your talent and his talent got him higher up. Why is it that some great quarterbacks are the ones that are drafted number one, like Troy Aikman, and some like Russell Wilson and Tom Brady are great at such a lower round, but there never seems to be somebody, okay, this guy was picked the first pick in the second round, or this guy was number 20 set. It's always either number one or way the hell down. Why is that? Because scouting is imperfect. And even with the extraordinary lengths they go to evaluate players by watching film, by watching them in an all-star game, by watching them in a scouting combine, by going to pro scouting days for a throwing exhibition, to background character uh, screening, it's still imperfect. So there are two routes to get to be a starting quarterback. One, you get picked high and then forced into play, usually prematurely. And the other is to sit behind a talented starter which is where a Tom Brady comes from, which is where uh, a whole series of quarterbacks from uh, Mark Burnell to Matt Hasselbeck, they all showed in uh, practice and during preseason games, and then they got traded. So the position simply takes time, and the more times that a quarterback sees the field, that slows down. So think of it like, the 15,000 hours they say you need to play piano, that you need to learn a skill by repetition. The brain is such that that the neurons and the wiring uh, don't slow what the quarterback's looking at down enough for him to have great field command unless he's played long enough. So two ways to show it, you get drafted at the top, and you get sort of thrown into it. But then the question is, what's the quality of the offensive line? What's the quality of the running game? Um, so I had Ben Roethlisberger, was not slated to start back in 2004, but um, he got thrown in there through injury. He had a superb offensive line. He had a great running game, and they dumbed down the offense. And that allowed him to win his first 14 games. I remember when he won the Super Bowl, I was there. It was a similar game to what Peyton Manning had in the last right. in the Super Bowl that he won. Mm -hmm. It was like, you can't believe that you can literally have a shitty game and your team is so great they can pick up around you and you can still win the Super Bowl, which is amazing to me that you can have a bad game and still win the greatest game of all time. Right. So the... NF AFC championship 
uh, game was happening before Ben won the uh, Super Bowl. And Ben is really superstitious. Um, and I called him up for tickets to that game. And he said, well, last year you came to the AFC championship and we lost. And I said, Ben, there were 70,000 other people in the stands too. He said, yes, I got this figured out though. I said, you won't mean there won't be tickets for me for the game? He said, well, you can come to Will Call, but there'll be a long, long wait. So I didn't go to the game, but they won. And now I went to the Super Bowl and they won. And on the way back on the bus, I said, Ben, guess what? You just won the Super Bowl and I'm here. So I guess I get to go to more Super Bowls. And he said, yes, but never an AFC championship game. <laughs> you know what's fascinating to me, what you just said, which blows me away. It's the thing that's blown me away the most of anything you said, me being a person who represents artists. Management 101 in my career, never ask an artist for anything. Never ask an artist for a ticket. Those players desperately want you to be there watching them. And in a game like a Super Bowl, there's only access to so many tickets. Uh, You're Lee fucking Steinberg. You have access to tickets. They like giving you tickets. If they like giving you tickets, they'll give you tickets. If they don't give you the tickets, that means they don't want to give you the ticket. Understood, but... All I was asking him is whether the tickets would be at Wokal, where the position, how he was getting them to me, because he um, uh, asked me to come to all these um, other games. It was just a tradition that every game we went to, he'd provide uh, tickets. It's a big um, upper the first time an athlete can afford to pay for dinner with me, right? It means they've arrived somehow. That's another thing that rarely happens in my business. And again, management 101, you go out to dinner with an artist, they never pay. I don't care if you did a $50 million deal for them, they never, you never let them pay. Now, don't get me wrong, there's times where you go to the bathroom and you get back and you say, could I have the check? And the artist has paid and you're like, God damn, and that's nice. But in your profession, you are okay if a guy does a big deal and you let him pay for the dinner. Absolutely. Because it's a mark of maturation. They no longer are the draftee that you've been supporting and subsidizing, paying for the training and all the rest of it. They have arrived. So Patrick Mahomes just got a monster check. And uh, part of, uh, of, of learning that role is that... Um, you're the, the player's the host in that situation. We may have flown back to a city, um, but uh, uh, there's still time for you to change professions. This year in 2018, presumably, there's going to be three quarterbacks that are going to be chosen in the top three slots. Probably there's Sam Darnold, there's Josh Rosen, and there's Josh Allen. And you're going to meet with all of them. You were in a position where you had one of the top two projected picks, God knows, 20 years ago with Ryan Leaf. So Ryan Leaf, you're representing, and somebody else represented Peyton Manning, even up to the draft day. Maybe you did, but the press, nobody knew who was going to get picked number one. Ryan didn't know. 
obviously Payton didn't know. Actually, Barry, we do know because what's happening during scouting is that teams that are serious about picking someone that high are constantly interactive. So they're telling us what they're thinking. And uh, in that case, I was pretty sure Indianapolis was going to take Ryan Leaf, but Ryan wanted to go to the team that had the second pick, which was San Diego. So There's actually a jersey that Dan Patrick has with the Indianapolis jersey with Ryan Leaf's name right. on it. So we were pretty sure that was going to happen. Now, this story, which I wrote in my book, The Agent, uh, trying to describe that situation created extraordinary controversy at the New York Super Bowl because my book had just come out and I described how Ryan Leaf tried to forum shop uh, and get himself down to the second pick. Define forum shop. Well, obviously, as you pointed out, the draft's totally restrictive. It takes a young person, tells them they have that one choice. So my feeling has always been that prior to the draft, as long as it's done in a low-key way, there's nothing wrong with uh, an athlete going ahead and, and, and trying to get to the place he wants to go. I mean, the draft system was not handed down uh, by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. It's not part of the Magna Carta. It's Why do you got involved the Jews? Because <laughs> we're always guilty. Um, <laughs> it's uh, that's why we were chosen. But as David Tell would say in high school gym class, the last chosen people. <laughs> uh, look, I just got into. I'm in three Jewish sports hall of fame, just to show you how bereft our people are. For <laughs> okay. Athletes. There were, I believe, eleven Jewish starters in the National Football League, and they all had something in common. They were all adopted. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, had Sandy Koufax not been the extraordinary role model for me uh, growing up, I, I might not have fallen in love uh, with baseball that much. So um, every ethnicity has their role models. So you're representing Ryan Leaf. You're a shrewd guy. You have a very good understanding of personalities. You're an old soul. Do you get done with like a meeting with Ryan, let's say, before he starts training camp and you go in your car and you're like, I don't know if this kid has the emotional maturity to get through the NFL. I, I thought I prepared him. I thought I told him. I thought I got him to a place of calm and I think I'm going to fail on this one. Or did you not see it coming? I didn't did not see it coming because uh, when I was recruiting Ryan, we talked about the same concepts, role modeling, making a difference. You know, do you want to make this your first career and get to the Hall of Fame? How serious are you about this? And he passed all those tests. He was also recommended by his coach and a number of players who knew him. What happened is that the whole first part of his uh, rookie year was smooth, and then they got to a game where he got sacked multiple times, and he had the unfortunate circumstance of um, being in the locker room, and a writer came up to him, and Ryan said, get out of my face. Um, what happens is if anything interesting is caught on a piece of film today, it then goes into the repetitive news cycle. So by the time uh, Ryan's 
little moment, get out of my face, had been shown repetitively over and over and over again. The emotional impression it gives is he didn't have just one bad five seconds where he came back and apologized. He was uh, a jerk all the time. But then your role, if I'm not mistaken, is to call Ryan and say, hey, Ryan, this is playing on a loop. We got to figure out what a response can be from you that will let the world know on a loop what kind of person you are. So mm -hmm. naturally, you try to get them on video saying, Crisis listen, control. I'm sorry. Right. I made a mistake in the heat of the moment. That writer I have a lot of respect for. I made a mistake. I'm human. and I apologize to the fans of San Diego, my teammates and this writer. And I want to move on. But he didn't do that. I can see that you've done damage control before. Yes, I have. Because that is exactly the right formula. Why didn't he do that? Because he went into a shell and he reacted to the external uh, criticism as if it was universal. And um, again, as we talked about, some people in adversity um, flourish and some people in adversity retreat and withdraw. So as much help as we tried to get them, it didn't seem to make a difference. The good news of it is that today he's healthy, but my point is that the intrinsic frustration of that situation was the more we reached out, the more he retreated. So um, I haven't had a whole a uh, flotilla of experiences like that, but that was very tough. So in your mind, it wouldn't have mattered if he was drafted by Indianapolis or San Diego. At one day, he would have been sacked by six different players and it would have <laughs> happened there. Or was it a question of how the coaching staff would have been better for him? Would he had a better career? I think those seeds were planted uh, a long time prior to his playing and that ultimately there would have been a behavioral explosion that would have played out hey everybody i'm really really excited we have a new sponsor aquatrue this is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology i know it sounds complicated but let's put it this way this is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies you're going to be enjoying the best water the safest water and if you haven't read all the news about flint michigan in every single state there's over a hundred chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the epa many of them are cancer causing and have lead in them so you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. All right, let's go way, 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 way back. Take me through where you grew up, what your family was like, and what the financial dynamic was. And then take me to your first inspiration okay. of wanting to get in this crazy business that you're in. Sure. 
Um, so my grandfather was a restaurateur who ran Hillcrest Country Club at a time when Los Angeles Country Club wouldn't allow um, Mexicans, blacks, Jews, Catholics, or actors. Back then, that was called restricted. Yes. I had one of those in my hometown. So Hillcrest formed, and it became the maven of uh, of the entertainment industry. So I have a autographed picture of me on the lap of Marilyn Monroe. I've got with Bob Hope. So you have something in common with John F. Kennedy. <laughs> yeah, except um, I wouldn't have been conscious at that particular time. But anyway, he he played gin rummy every day with a group of comedians who were Groucho Marx, George Burns, George uh, Jessel, Jack Benny. And so I would go every week and sit on his lap. So I had that from the entertainment industry. George Burns took me to my first baseball game, and um, which then was minor league baseball here. Um, and it was an unusual youth. I mean, I was on uh, Art Link Letters, Kids Say the Darndest Thing, uh, which only you and I will remember. You were on that show. I was. What was the darndest thing you said? It was a few weeks ago. I'm not really clear. Um, so um, That's amazing that you were around these iconic comedians. Groucho Marx and his granddaughter Melinda uh, cut a record with my grandpa and I to the tune of uh, anything you can do, I can do better from Annie, get your gun. You know, I can shoot a partridge with a single cartridge. I can hit a sparrow with a bow and arrow. Uh, I can live on bread and cheese. Fancy that, so can a rat. So um, my father, however, turned away from the restaurant uh, business. My other grandfather uh, was a doctor here who founded uh, City of Hope, but I didn't get to know him because um, he went over in 1947 for the independence battle for Israel, and he was on a convoy from um, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. It was hijacked by, by Arabs, and, and he was killed. But So my father turned away and decided he wanted to be a teacher. So when I was young, he was working three jobs. We were in a house at the edge of Culver City here in Los Angeles. Um, five of us used the same bathroom. I shared a room with my two brothers. Um, and But it was a really enjoyable uh, childhood here in Southern California in the, in the 50s and, um, and early and 60s. And so... Um, at the dinner table, he would stress, again, concepts like when you're looking for someone to make a change in life, to fix a problem, to deal with a disturbing situation, and you keep waiting for they or them to do it, he would say, the government, older people, he'd look at me and say, son, there is no they. You are the they. So... It built in us a sense of responsibility that we could had a burden and responsibility to try to do basic change and help people in the world. And so I was, that was my motivation hardwired. So we moved when I went to uh, high school to another uh, situation. I was got involved in student politics. I was student body president of my elementary school, junior high, high school, Berkeley, and then law school. So 
we were wired in in that way um, to to uh, care about people. So then, what's the next step? How do you transfer from being around the greatest comedians in the world and not going into that business and going into the sports entertainment business? So it's the '60s, and the whole country's changing. Um, it's anti-Vietnam. It's long hair. It's different dress. It's uh, sexual freedom. It's uh, amazing music. It's uh, uh, herbal substances. And uh, I went a year to UCLA, and it was a fun year because um, we had uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and. Actually, my first demonstration was that UCLA was aced out of the Rose Bowl by SC because they voted for SC. So we went down Gailey Boulevard, walked down Wilshire, and then blocked the 405 freeway. So that was my first social activism. But Berkeley was calling. It was a vortex of everything that was exciting in the world. It was the Mecca. And so I went there and uh, I ended up student body president when Ronald Reagan was governor. So every time we would demonstrate against the war, he would crack down and his ratings would go up very high. I really learned everything I needed to learn about negotiating from interacting with Governor Reagan. And uh, later, it was funny, he gave me a humanitarian award and we sat in the White House and laughed about um, how we duped it out for all that time. Um, so I'm a dorm counselor working my way through law school. There is no field of agentry at that point to aspire to because players represented themselves or their parents represented them. There were no agents. Virtually none. And there's that famous jo joke where Jim Ringo brings an agent in to deal with Vince Lombardi and Lombardi's in the back room and says, let me make a call. And the agent starts to talk and he says, well, Lombardi says, we have nothing to say. Why? I just traded your client to Detroit. That was how they dealt with agents. So uh, there was nothing to aspire to. As a kid, I'd watch Perry Mason, uh, the defenders, judge for the defense, and I thought I was going to be a, a lawyer that uh, was like a Clarence Darrow and changed the world, or I'd go into politics. And um, so Bartkowski's in that dorm. I'll tell you who else was in that dorm when I was dorm counselor, a little bearded guy that the jocks picked on until he figured out how to wire their phones for free phone calls. His name was Steve, and uh, Steve Wozniak went down to, <laughs> to Santa Clara and uh, became what he was. We had another person who invented the concept of power bar. But anyway, so I graduate from law school. I'm choosing between, um, I have an offer to to do television sports like on to be a tv person or uh multiple offers to work for litigation firms and uh, and before i ever get there uh bartkowski's the first pick in the first round of the nfl draft which was then held in january and he asked me to represent him and he didn't even know if you could do it or not no, he didn't. <laughs> so, but things worked out. We got the largest rookie contract in the in NFL history. You always say we. 
There's no we when you're in the dorm. It's you. I think it's really important when you do this uh, sort of thing publicly in the world to not get too self-absorbed. And so it's the royal we. I think it's important to bifurcate your life between the real way that you deal with friends and the way you deal with family and everything that comes publicly. Because to confuse your public role with, uh, you know, to confuse being on 60 Minutes with being a good person or being on Lifestyles Rich and Famous with being someone that's still sensitive and, and cares, you would be disastrous. But anyway, so the World Football League is competing against the National Football League, and we signed this record-breaking contract. So we get into Atlanta. How do you know how to do a contract? You've never done a contract. Student politics, because it's fundamentally about leverage. It's fundamentally about understanding that this team has been dreadful. This team had problems with Gate because they had a bad um, uh, quarterback and a bad team. It's understanding the business you're in. So it's researching what are the revenue flows into the NFL? What's the position of the person I'm negotiating with? Um, can he make a deal or does he have to defer to an owner? It's, it's understanding every potential influence on them. What I said before, putting yourself in the heart and mind of the person you're negotiating with so that you see the world the way they see it and can then deal with it on that terms. Anyway, we get to Atlanta and the night before the signing, there are Klieg lights flashing in the sky like for a movie premiere. Um, a police uh, crowds pressed up against a police line. And the first thing we hear is we interrupt the Johnny Carson show to bring you a special news bulletin. Steve Bartkowski and his attorney, Lee Steinberg, have just arrived at the Atlanta airport. We switch you live for an in-depth interview. Wow. So I looked at Bartkowski probably the way that Dorothy looked at Toto when they got the Oz. And I said, I know we're not in Berkeley anymore. And that was when I saw the tremendous idol worship and veneration athletes were held in. That's where I saw how, uh, and that's where I developed the philosophy of uh, trying to have athletes retrace their roots and, and make a difference. That's your first big entrance into your business. Very rare that somebody, their first time doing anything has the first pick in the draft. I mean, that's insane. So it's like somebody winning an Emmy Award in their first show they ever wrote or produced. Now you didn't probably have to go to people. Athletes were coming to you. So actually what happened is the next year was rough because I hadn't figured out um, the whole process of recruiting athletes. Um, and... I went to bowl games, talked to a slew of people, got some very decent draft picks, but it wasn't the number one pick in the draft again. And what it taught me was that I was better off to profile the type of person that would be receptive, the mother, the father, the player, to the philosophy I had than talking to the totality of athletes. So um, because I learned how to profile, I was able to to uh, uh, be more effective. Uh, 
actually, I had spent so much money by the end of the second year that my dad, whose credit cards I was using, said I, money to travel to visit each family or to have them fly in to visit us or to go to bowl games, which were in Tokyo, Honolulu, Mobile, Alabama. So the economics of it were such that I was about to go out of business. So Steve Bartkowski bought me a plane ticket to Atlanta and uh, rented me a car, and I drove down to Douglas, Georgia. Did he do that because he knew you were in trouble? Yes. You told your client you were in financial trouble and that you were going to go out of business. Yes. To me, I'm speechless because Bernie Brillstein, one of the greatest managers in the history of show business, who I'm sure you met many times, he was in debt $3 million, never said anything to anybody because he knew he would lose everything if he did. These are different relationships with young men that become very personal, very bonded, and a caring starts to happen. So it's not simply me caring for them. It's them caring for me. I now realize that you're in a phenomenal business, and most agents and managers are in a business that's much less phenomenal because those things that you described, if you told an artist that you were in trouble and that you were going under, then they'll just find another person who isn't in trouble. And they'd say, hey, that's not my fucking problem. You created that pal. These other guys weren't in financial problems. How could they do? How did they make it happen? And you're not making it happen. They would just cut your legs out. But this relationship didn't happen that way. Well, I think a key in life is that when you realize that a friend is having problems, um, are you there? Are you there? Do you back that person up when it's not comfortable to be their friend? But it's show business. That's why business is the bigger word. Well, I'm glad I didn't go to business school and never learned that. <laughs> so we go on to um, we're in the rural south, and I mean rural. And so I'm taking a drive down to see one of two offensive linemen from the University of Georgia. And this, there were two of them, Mike Moonpie Wilson and Joel Cowboy Parrish. So I'm going down to see Joel Parrish in uh, Douglas, Georgia. Well, the first thing that happens is he picks me up. And I'd never seen this before, but there's a cup up on his uh, dashboard. And we go around a fast turn, and all of a sudden this cup filled with liquid um, falls on me. And I'm drenched, and it's uh, chewing tobacco spit. Oh, my okay? God. So uh, now I'm going to go meet the parents, right, of this young man. And I look like uh, I'm in camouflage. And you don't have another shirt. No. So um, anyway, I sit down and... Um, and meet with them, and it's Joel Cowboy Parish Day in Douglas, and well, I'm in the rural south, and I sign him to a contract, sign him with the Canadian team. He gets a big bonus. Wait, you sign him right there in the room? Yes. Did you oftentimes bring the contracts in the room? We didn't have contracts in those days. Today they have them. We had handshakes. So anyway, so I signed him and I got a big check for $3,000, which is that, think, 20 today, and I survived. And the next year I started having high uh, draft picks. So um, it's really 
important to be able to be brutally self-honest about what's working, what's not, and and make adjustments. You're going along and you're kicking ass, and then the bottom falls out on those two principles that your dad instilled in you. So could you share with our audience, if you don't mind, what was happening and what triggered everything? How hard did you fall and how did you get back up? So I had had a very charmed life uh, representing those athletes in baseball, basketball, hockey, boxing, uh, football. Um, and it really built a practice that was fairly unique, had the most players of anyone. Um, by that point, I'd you know, written a best-selling book. I had, was uh, in the, had raised hundreds of millions of dollars for charity, um, had uh, three great kids. And then in the 2000s, things in my personal life started to happen. And it was like Jobian in the sense that as it kept happening, I thought, what's next? Locust, uh, river of blood, darkness. I've been open about this uh, because we're only going to live this one life. And if part of the focus is to help people, you know, addiction's a big problem in this country. So my father had been the rock in my life and the one source of unconditional love. And... Um, he got esophageal cancer. And I watched this strong person who's been a rock for me uh, gradually descend till he you know, lost the weight and the rest of it, and he died. Um, and I said at the funeral, he, he taught us how to live, and then he taught us how to die. So that happened, and it was destabilizing to me. Nothing in work, the fact there are reverses or heavy travel, that never bothered me. I expect every day there'll be unforeseen circumstances. You don't win everything. You're not ultimately successful. But this was different. And I, I'd been told by my dad, if you were smart enough, if you're creative enough, that you could always fix a situation, right, if you worked hard enough and all the rest of it. And I couldn't protect him from, from cancer. It was probably grandiose to think that I had the power to do it anyway. So then... So one of the few times in your life and your professional life and your personal life where you had no control over no the power, situation. No power. No power. So then um, my two boys were diagnosed with something called retinitis pigmentosa, which starts with a narrowing uh, night blindness and leads to narrowing of the visual field. So there they are at roughly you know, 19 and, and 15, and they're going to be blind. It's, and is that the prognosis for that disease? You're going to be legally blind? Yeah. So my older son now is legally blind and the younger one sort of struggling. One of the most traumatic things in life is when you have your sight and you lose your sight. And the unfairness of it, the randomness of it. This just keeps coming in 2004 or five, And then... We live in Newport Beach, um, and we discover mold in our home and uh, are told that we have one day to, to leave, um, which had occurred because El Nino got water on the floors. So we've got toxic mold. So we leave everything in that house and eventually didn't sell it as a house, although we could have, but not to have that 
go to someone else. So this gorgeous house of our dreams, which is the site of so much of our family, is now smashed to the ground. So they couldn't demold it? No. How's that possible? It's um, because as you go into the structure of it, uh, the remediation process is such that, yes, you can deal with most mold, but this house was so infested that that it was in some of the core of it. So the only, I didn't want it on my conscience that the next person got sick somehow. So we knocked it to the ground. And then we moved to another neighborhood very carefully having, up, uh, having found a mold-free house. And then the, the uh, ceilings in that house flooded and we were now in mold again. And um, so now I'm frustrated because notwithstanding how much money I have, you know, I've sold my business a couple of years back for $120 million. It doesn't matter. I can't find a safe uh, place for, for my kids. And then ultimately my marriage broke up. So it was the first time in my life I had ever lived really alone when you look at your relationship with your wife, what was your part and what was her part? It's not important to me what her part was. What's important to me is that um, I failed on a lot of uh, ways because of alcohol. You started drinking when these bad things started happening or you always been drinking socially? I was one beer Steinberg back in college. So for most of my life, I knew how to push it uh, back. People who went to school when I did were much more likely to be involved with herbal substances. Than was that a one beer every day or was that a one beer when just somebody said, we're going to have a beer? No, for example, in college, we were trying to get good grades. So it might be the weekend. And um, so that went on for a long time. Um, and what happened is I moved into an apartment and I found out it was legal to consume alcohol by the light of day, uh, something I hadn't done before. I don't understand. Well, the drinking I'd done would be late at night. You know, what sort you of found it was legal. Anyone can drink any time of the day. Thank you. That's a, uh, it was clear to you, but it wasn't point, clear to you. No, because the point is that I wasn't going to drink during work. I wasn't going to drink, um, um, you know, around my kids during the day. Um, so anyway, so. Um, that added to what had been late night drinking, um, could, got a really high alcohol rate going. And, and was this before your dad got sick or after? Mm -hmm. And, uh, I might sort of do it by myself and it was clear I was struggling, but I was still productive in business. So I had a big office staff. I had a big group of people, and they did everything they could. When's the first time you noticed that somebody in the office said, you came in like 45 minutes late today. Is everything okay? That wasn't what I would do. What I would do is stay home. And so um, the thought of drinking alcohol and having to do high-level work was not real appealing to me. Um, but when I knew, got to a certain state, they knew I was at home and drinking. How did they know? Because I had office staff, uh, people around me that were really close to me. So, it, you know, they might 
come see how I was doing during the day. Did you have anybody in your office that had the balls and oh, the absolutely. comfort level to yeah, come up to you and say, absolutely. let's do absolutely. something? Absolutely. And so I went to a series of rehabs. Um, and 30-day ones or longer? A combination. I mean, I, I could write the... Uh, the folders guide of rehab facilities. Well, how do you explain that to your clients? You can still make phone calls and do some things, but but at that point in 2006, um, it was clear to me I was starting to have problems. So what I did is I gave the the agent practice to younger agents. But then what happens when you do that and the same in management or the agency business, you start passing your clients on to other people. And like you said, it's about the relationships. They form but relationships these were, with them. These were the lawyers and these were the agents that were working for me in my own office. But sometimes those people take off and they start their own agencies and they take the clients with right. them when they form it, the relationship. Ha that happens in every you know field, whether it's management, accounting, law firms. The point is, so, so I cared about the clients, and I realized I was having problems. So the younger agents uh, went off and, and took that practice, and I stopped representing players for a few years. Let's just take Steve Barkowski, the first deal you made. Uh -huh. Presumably, it's like a four- or five-year deal. So you do the deal. The contract is signed, sealed, delivered. What do you have to do for the next four years besides collect the 4% commission? And where did the 4% commission come from? Where did that come from? Did you throw a dart at a wall somewhere and say, hey, it's going to be 4%? I mean, you know what's ironic? I, I paid my literary agent 15%. <laughs> what I really should have done is switch jobs <laughs> economically. Um, the unions set those rates. so. But it, but it was a new profession. Oh, when I originally started? Yeah. You charge whatever you want, but it was around 5% then. At any rate, um, so I, I'm starting to spiral down, and I'm starting to miss days, and um, and I go to a series of rehabs, and I went to one at Harvard that was like ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 a day uh, because I'm still really functional at work. So it's hard for people around me to see um, – when I'm still functional and rational and everything at work, that actually this whole other side's going on. But there were plenty of people who intervened. And uh, in 2010, I hit my final bottom and uh, shut down my office, uh, uh, shut down my apartment, and went back to live with uh, my mom in West L.A. Define to our audience for you what hitting rock bottom means. So alcohol and alcoholics have a disease that hides from the fact, hides from you the fact you have a disease and it promotes heavy denial, okay? So you have to have a breakthrough at some point that's going to um, make it clear that living this way is completely unacceptable and that you'll do anything to change it. So gradually the signs were that I was having, uh, my middle son wasn't talking to me, okay, the whole time he was at SC film school. That was not good. Um, and uh, uh, I was starting to get to the point where I'd have a blackout. 
And that wasn't good because you couldn't remember what had actually happened. You'd wake up the next morning with no actual memory of, of what you'd been involved in, which is uh, terrifying. I had a DUI. Um, and so life had become unmanageable. And um, so I'm sitting back in West L.A. and at my mom's house, my father's deceased, but my mom's had a stroke. So there I am back at the start. And my only concept is where I can find more vodka. And um, my whole worldview was where I could find the next drink to stay in that state, not think about the things that happened to my family, which I couldn't do anything about. And, um, and then I had an epiphany, a breakthrough, a realization that, um, that I was failing both my father's admonitions, that I was hurting my children who didn't ask for their father to have alcohol problems. And they'd been really the center of my life in a lot of ways. And, uh, and I was wasting whatever talent I had. And um, so I went off to sober living. Uh, my brother took me to sober living. Was it you in the fetal position somewhere in your mom's house that just said, okay, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm going to go here. Or was it somebody who came to you and said, Lee, come on, it's time. I was helped by, by a sponsor I had at that point in AA and my brother who came and they took me off to a place called Charlie Street, which is um, a sober living indigent detox center in um, in uh, southern in Orange County, and um, they didn't have room for me, so I had the um, ignominious distinction of not even being able to get into uh, uh, indigent um, into indigent uh, rehab, and. So it was March 20th, 2010, and um, my first sober day was March 21st, and I stayed in sober living for about seven or eight months. And then I did every single thing that I thought was possible from uh, getting a sponsor, joining a unique fraternity, uh, working a 12-step program. I went to conventions they had for worldwide unique fellowship, we'll call it, uh, for um, read every book, went to a zillion meetings, and just dedicated myself to, to um, becoming sober. And so I readjusted my sights at that point and said, you know what, if nothing else, I will be sober and I will be a good father. And if that's what the rest of my life has in store for me, at least I'll do that. And the rest of it's not important. And um, then several years later, I found a group of uh, investors who wanted to help me set up a uh, a new firm that would represent athletes and do marketing of teams, leagues, universities, corporations, um, and we do sports-themed uh, television, radio, uh, apps, um, and uh, 
um, it was not a rapid process. I felt like uh, Sophocles pushing a massive ball up a hill, and every time I take a step or two forward, it would roll back slightly. But the um, was that Sophocles or was that Physicist or whatever his name was? Sisyphus. Sisyphus. You're right. You got me on on Latin gods. Um, You're still smarter than me, Lee. Um, yeah, I was smart enough to turn it into an alcohol. <laughs> so uh, um, alcohol doesn't discriminate versus <laughs> right. dumb and intelligent. So the the point is that, and I've never changed the routine I had since then. And I've been public about it. I put my days up on my Facebook. Uh, now I have this national uh, following of uh, of uh, uh, people who are in the same situation. And um, so, and what I tell them is, look, if you're depressed, if you're confused, if your life has gone out of control and you feel helpless, um, I was there too. And um, there are 12-step programs, unique fellowships available to help you. And if you just reach out, there's help. So through that miasma of uh, confusion and darkness, if you could just see your way through to coming to a meeting of a unique fellowship, if you could just see your way through to try to take a positive step, you can get back. So you're back. Tell me the first client that you met with, who you signed, and how your pitch slightly changed in sobriety. It's a similar pitch, except that I'm open about um, uh, the struggles I had with uh, alcohol. It was uh, Garrett Gilbert, a quarterback from SMU, whose father I had represented, Gail Gilbert, um, who was a quarterback for Buffalo, San Diego, went to five Super Bowls. And um, uh, so we uh, started with him. I had other people with me at that point. I, I quickly got a younger um, partner named Chris Cabot, who's uh, really bright and has the next great superstar. And and because of our philosophy, people that have got a little bit of idealism want to make their life stand for something positive uh, more relate to this. And and sports agency, sports law, and careers in the sports business are the hottest thing on college campuses now. So thousands and thousands of people. There are actually a thousand certified NFL agents um, recruiting a couple hundred players who come out of the draft. So that's why we've started agent academies where we train uh, young. We had one this weekend where we had 30 young people that I trained how to do real life skills, um, how to listen, how to negotiate, how to recruit, how to brand, how to market. Um, and uh, <laughs> the other day I did a phone call for 200 uh, students who are interested in this. So my goal is to mentor the next generation of idealistic, principled, highly trained sports agents to, who understand the power this all has. Tell me the closest you've come in the last seven years to taking a drink. Um, I think it's a misperception that 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 all recovering alcoholics sit there uh, struggling. Um, 
and uh, that somehow the presence of alcohol or a substance causes this big craving. The reality is that once you get through the first couple months, the craving that makes you do insane things drops away. And um, so as long as I'm involved in having a program to deal with this all, uh, frankly, I don't think of it in terms of something uh, I'm going to consume. So I'm around people who are drinking all the time. And I really haven't had that type of moment um, where, where I struggle with that. I've had moments where um, occasionally I had moments of uh, frustration, despair with the fact I dug myself in so deep a hole. Okay. But it never led to going back to doing the same uh, thing. So um, I'll go to the Hall of Fame tomorrow. They'll, it's a Disneyland of drinking. Um, you've never seen um, so much alcohol in your life as when that world gets together. I was there with my son. If you went to a party, you would see. Um, but it had no effect. Um, in the same way that when I'm dieting, which obviously I haven't for a while, um, when I'm dieting, I can see a piece of pizza. It's, I love pizza, but it's not my food, okay? So I can never safely drink again. And if that's all that I can't do, it leaves an extraordinary world of, of excitement, joy uh, that I can do. So I just, one thing has become uh, unacceptable for me, um, but... Um, but it leaves an amazing, wonderful world to explore. Um, and um, so, no, I haven't had that moment. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name or something and anything that comes to your mind. It could be a word, a sentence, a story. The 20th anniversary, Jerry Maguire. <laughs> so in 1993, uh, a film director, writer named Cameron Crowe called me up and asked if he could shadow me for a film that would involve a sports agent. And... I had seen a movie called Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which I thought was Sean Penn's greatest uh, dramatic role. And um, there's a line where he bangs a tennis shoe against his head and he says, I'm so wasted, which is pretty classic. Um, it's not quite uh, Bluto uh, pretending he's a zit in, a, uh, uh, in Animal House. In Animal House, but it's up there. So. 
I said, sure. And I knew he had uh, written a whole life of uh, a whole series of things on uh, rock music. And he was married to um, the female singer from Heart. So he started following me. And everywhere I went, if it was the NFL draft, he was there. If it was league meetings for a week in Palm Desert, he was there. If it was pro scouting day at SC, he was there. Uh, Games, the rest of it. And I told him, stories lots of stories and then my job was to vet the script to make sure that the willing suspension of disbelief necessary to hold you with the plot so you don't feel it's phony or cliched didn't get broken and then he assigned me a young actor named cuba gooding jr who i took with me down to the super bowl uh in phoenix and made him pretend he was a wide receiver all week um, Cameron says, now don't just understand. I know you athletes are rough drinking crowd and everything. This is an actor. Don't let him get in trouble. So one night, myself and every client I had were in a bar. We were all drooling over the table, virtually passed out. And there's Cuba tap dancing on the top of the bar. So um, uh, I had to show the quarterback in that film, played by Jerry O'Connell, how to throw a spiral because he had gone to NYU and they didn't have football there. Um, so I worked on the set. I worked some with Tom Cruise. I worked with the different actors. And um, um, and it became the highest grossing sports film in history. Um, and ever since that, I've not been able to walk through an airport or go out to dinner anywhere. Because of your cameo? <laughs> no, without someone running up and saying, you know, wanting me to say or or saying, show me the money. It was, uh, and I agreed with Cameron, I wouldn't talk about what parts of what went up on the screen, but there's a lot of life up there. So is that the most realistic movie about sports agenting or any kind of agenting? Yes. Uh, and he saw a lot of things. So uh, when you're Buddy Jay Moore tries to hug an athlete in that film. <laughs> um, he had seen me hugging athletes, and he knew that. Uh, uh, and I'll tell you where the line, show me the money, comes from. So Tim McDonald was a safety from uh, the Arizona Cardinals who had become a free agent. So he could go to any team. So we were out in Palm Desert. I was showing Tim off to these teams. And Cameron and he were upstairs in our hotel room. And Lou Dobbs and Moneyline was on in the background. And Cameron said to Tim, what are you looking for in this experience? And he said, well, I'm looking for a team to show me some respect. I'm looking for a team to show me winning. And I'm looking for a team to show me the money. Fantastic. What about the word Quan? Where did that come from? Cameron Crowe's brilliant mind. <laughs> it's uh, uh, Cameron Crowe's um, brilliant mind. After that, I did Any Given Sunday. Jerry West. My hero. So I fell in love with the Lakers in the 60s, and it was West Chamberlain and Elgin Baylor. So I was negotiating Byron Scott's contract, the guard for the Lakers, and I'm negotiating with Jerry West. And I said, I can't do this, Jerry. And he said, what? I said, 
your poster hung above my bed the whole time I'm growing up. How am I supposed to do a tough negotiation with you? You know, I just want to talk to you. <laughs> so that's Jerry West. CTE. And explain to our audience who doesn't know what that is and what's happening in the world right now in professional football and how crazy it is how many people are retiring. So in the late 90s, in the early 90s, I became concerned representing players who kept getting hit in the head. And we'd go to doctors and there were no answers. So I held the first concussion conference in Newport Beach in 1994. And we had neurologists from across the country um, talking to our athletes on what the issues were. No one knew how many were too many at that point. No one knew what the effect was. So we issued a white paper with specific suggestions and sent it to every team um, in the league, no response. So in 19, 2005, I did it again with Warren Moon. How could you get no response? You can call Roger Goodell up on the phone and he pick up the phone. What do you mean no response? There was a denial in the league that concussions were a problem, that, that too many would lead to long-term consequence, and that one concussion had an effect on another. So if you have the initial concussion and it takes – well, that it takes a blast to to do it. A player who plays too quickly and goes out on the field can get knocked out with a much uh, smaller force. So then we had uh, neurologists, including Bennett Amalu, who the concussion movie was. Uh, the Will Smith movie. He well played Bennett. So, and at that point, they had studies that showed that three or more concussions raise an exponentially higher risk of Alzheimer's, premature senility, ALS, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a syndrome that comes from being hit too much in the head. It creates what's called tau or protein in the brain, and it leads to a behavioral spiral that starts with alteration of personality, um, withdrawal from family, withdrawal from job, um, uh, memory loss, and in some cases, suicide. So we pointed out that the evidence was in. The NFL at this point is still denying that concussions have any real danger. And I'm sitting there knowing that I have a fiduciary responsibility to clients and they're playing a game that could lead them to dementia. So what's my role? Is it to simply stack more dollars in their bank book or is it to, to really protect them, which is to go after uh, a better awareness prevention solutions in concussion? Um, but Elliot Pellman, who was the league doctor at that point on concussions. And his background was he was a rheumatologist. Of all the doctors they could have gotten on brain specialty in neurology, they appointed a rheumatologist. And I'm not a doctor, but I don't think rheumatology has much to do with the brain. Um, and so anyway, he went into Sports Illustrated and called me a fear monger. So here's the problem now. Every time an offensive lineman 
hits a defensive lineman at the inception of every play in football, it produces a low-level sub-concussive event. Just a little bit of change. The G-force is extraordinary because you've got two, 300-pound people hitting each other. I would imagine you don't even have to hit something in the head. Let's face it, if it's, you hit the side of the car, the engine's going to shake exactly. around. Exactly. So the, that, that blow produces a low-level sub So those are the event. people that have the greatest chance of getting CTE. Here's lineman. Here is the problem. An offensive lineman who plays high school, college, and professional football could come out of the game with 10,000 sub-concussive hits, none of which have been diagnosed, none of which he's aware of, but the aggregate would almost certainly produce the same brain damage that getting knocked out four or five times will be. So suppose women across the country start to understand these facts. And incidentally, this is not just an NFL problem. It's a high school and college football problem. It's an AYSO soccer problem where girls are getting knocked out because of thinner necks where people are heading. It's a hockey, a field. It's all collision sports. My sons were enjoying football. And one kid broke his arm. Not my kids, another kid. One kid had a leg injury. And it's like... The next year, a group of people got together and they said, hey, we're going to start this football team all over again. We got the coach from the high school coming in, this guy from out of town. The reason why your kids got injured is because the coaching wasn't right. People aren't preparing people properly. And these people who were reputable people spent three months recruiting from the town and could not get enough people to play. And I was one of them that I said to my kids, I said, I'm not going to tell you to play or not play, but I do want you, like I did, to do the research and make your own decision. And even though they were 11 and 12 at the time, they decided to play baseball instead. So to that exact point, if 50% of the mothers in this country understand the facts of concussion and tell their teenage boys, you can play any sport and will support you, but not tackle football. It won't kill football, but what it'll do is change the socioeconomic makeup of who plays. And the people who will be left will be people that, for economic reasons, need to engage in it in the same way that people box and play UFC. It's like rollerball. You can't change the offensive and defensive tackle position and the way the game is. You can change the way people tackle you can change helmet to helmet contact. You can make the concussion protocol. The guy leaves the place, but you can't change the offensive and defensive line. Those players have to, even if they don't hit each other in the head, they have to block each other. You, how can you make the game safer? I know how you can make the game safer for every other position, but how can you stop the two 300-pound guys from going against each other? Because that's the nature of the game. So... I just wrote a three-part series for Forbes on on the concussion crisis with a set of um, with a set of suggestions. And the first suggestion is when is it appropriate for kids to play tackle football? So if you can cut down the years in which their brain is hurt, so there are people who say 14, there are people who say high school, but that's the first question. 
Um, the second thing is if you teach proper blocking and tackling techniques early, so by the time players get to the pros, they're able to understand that. The, the, you now move to the issue of helmetry. So there's a helmet made by Tate Technology that uses coil and compression to displace the energy as it hits the plastic in the liner by as much as 50%, and they think they can get higher. So you're finding a way to, to alleviate what otherwise would be a heavy blow. If we can send a space voyager to Mars, we can use engineering to figure out a safer helmet, and that then becomes a helmet for um, a variety of, of bicycles, motorcycles, uh, and every different sport. I get your point on that, but to have young people heading the ball in soccer, girls show lower test scores, and their necks are not as defined, so they're having real problems with that. Um, we need better um, diagnostic techniques on the sidelines to be able to, to, to measure this and understand this. So if we figure out that the G-force in a certain blow, they can measure the G-force to your point about the offensive and defensive linemen. And what they can see is it's gone up like five times because you now have three. I had a client play tackle who was the second pick in the draft. His name was Leonard Davis. Of course. Okay. So Leonard Davis was six foot six, weighed 375 pounds, and could run a fast 40. So if you... The physics of the hit have actually changed. The G-force has accelerated. So if you get bigger, stronger bodies, that would be unimaginable when I started. Um, that's what you're sort of up against. So we're now, I'm pushing hard to stimulate every possible way that equipment could mitigate this. And then to start to track... Um, the number of concussions that people have. So those linemen at least ought to know when they're starting to approach a post-career danger point. What about the people like Tom Brady who know they have concussions and keep them silent? So athletes are in a state of denial. They grow up with Pop Warner and Little League surrounded by people who all believe the same thing, that real men stay in the lineup, that when you're injured, you're stoic about it, um, that you don't want to be a training camp player. So, and they're self surrounded by other people who believe the same thing. So think about this. You're in my sense of health would be that long-term health would be the most cons important consideration. Playing a football career, much lower than that. Playing in a given season, lower than that. Playing in a given game would obviously be the least important. And playing in a play in that hierarchy of values is the least important uh, thing. To the athlete, they turn that pyramid on its head. Playing this play is the most important thing. And the consequence of long-term health, the consequence of, of a life after football is an abstraction. So you have young people denial and you have athletic denial, which is like denial cubed. Okay, so let's go one step further because you represented Lennox Lewis. 
boxing is now being supplanted in popularity, similar to the NFL supplanting baseball. I know what you say to the people involved in football and those kind of things in the header and soccer. But what do you say to the people in the boxing profession and the UFC profession? How do they avoid these diseases? First of all, you have to be honest, if they're your clients, that there's a danger here. And you have to work out a system, as I said, where you can spot the danger, assess the danger, how many times you've been hit in the head. And then we have brain scans or brain specs that can show if damage is already occurring. Um, they can isolate the different parts of the brain, and usually concussion hits the amygdala, which is in, in uh, uh, but sometimes it can, it hits at various points. But by the blood flow in the brain, you can figure out impairment and which areas are impaired. So I would have them taking a, a speck a year, and then you've got the difficult job of convincing them to protect themselves. And it is very difficult. It usually is me, a wife or parent, and the athlete. Jerry Jones and Troy Aikman. <laughs> um, I just wrote an article on Jerry that's in Forbes uh, today. Um, so we get there, it's 1989, and Jerry fires Tex Schramm, Gil Brandt, and, um, and he's from Arkansas. And you represent Troy Aikman. And the first positive thing he does is they have the first pick in the draft. And so Troy and I fly in to meet with Jimmy Johnson, uh, Jerry Jones, his son, Stephen, to get to know him prior to... Jimmy Johnson, the new coach. Yes. So um, we're talking all day, and they're getting to know Troy. And then Jerry and I adjourn to the lobby of the um, airport Hyatt, and we talk marketing and football concepts all night. And it was clear to me then that I'd been so frustrated over the years because the television contract in football hadn't adjusted to the fact that instead of three major networks, you had hundreds now. And they would bid lost leader economics, more money, than they could ever recoup in um, advertising to get sports on the air in a way to build their Monday through Friday primetime uh, lineup. So it was a bottom line uh, uh, effort to, to, to do that. And it drove rights fees nuts. So Jerry and I talked about that. So in two. 1975, each team as a chair of the national TV contract in um, football received $2 million. They share it alike. And at the point Jerry and I are talking, it's about $17 million. So we're talking about how do you explode this out by bringing in bidding. This summer, each team's cashing a check for their share of national TV for $244 million. So I could see he got it. I could see this was an owner that was going to be exciting. He understood it's about branding. He understood marketing. He understood he could have the most valuable entertainment franchise in the world. 
And he bought that team for $140 million, and it's currently valued at $4.4 billion. But he got it, and I thought, oh, my goodness, this is exciting because the real battle is not labor versus management. It's the battle that football has with baseball, basketball, home box office, Walt Disney World, and every other form of discretionary entertainment. So we shouldn't be pillaging each other publicly on player contracts, and we shouldn't be having bad collective bargaining because it pushes the fans away. Um, and and I saw someone who, who got all this and understood that there would be new stadia with luxury boxes, premium seating, jumbo scoreboard, signage, naming rights, and I thought this is going to be exciting. So he went out there and started to do those things because he owned Cowboys Stadium. He he cross ambushed. He he uh, did ambush marketing. So the league poured Coke and he poured Pepsi. So he was able to carve all these things out. The other owners resented him, but ultimately he moved to become uh, one of the two most powerful owners in the league. And um, we have a football team in Los Angeles. The other being Robert Kraft. Yes, Robert Kraft. Um, uh, we have a football team in Los Angeles. Two. We now have two, but the first one only came because Jerry shepherded um, uh, the effort of the then St. Louis Cardinals to move here. He had a willing owner, but there were three teams that could have come, and we have the Rams back, and in another incarnation, I was chairman of Save the Rams back in 1994. I wish you were chairman today. <laughs> I, <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, in uh funny anyway um so we fought hard to keep them but jerry jones has been a giant and the fact that the nfl looks the way it looks now is uh partly his uh achievement oliver stone um brilliant filmmaker um a real contrast from working with Cameron Crowe, who was low-key and easy. Um, and he asked me to, uh, to work on the film Any Given Sunday. So originally, a rapper was supposed to play the role of quarterback in that film. And Oliver took me Who was up. that rapper? I won't say, but his name starts with P. So, um, uh, but he couldn't throw the football. And um, Oliver says, will you take this film and show it to all your buddies who are GMs and tell me what they think? I said, I'm not taking it to him. He can't throw. Um, so they brought in experts to help uh, help him and all that. And I, at the end, I said, Oliver, if you want to double him in every action scene, fine but he can't throw. I said, I said not to be sexist, um, but he throws like a girl. And I said, even more, I knew girls in powder puff when I went to college who can throw better than he can. So anyway, at the end of it, they fired him and they hired a young comedic actor, and that was his first dramatic role, Jamie uh, Foxx. Another um, comedian was a wide receiver in that movie, Bill Bellamy. <laughs> Bill Bellamy. I uh, spent time with him. Um, 
So I got one night where, where Al Pacino and I went out and I sort of tried to put him in role, meaning motivate and describe what his thought process would be as a coach. And he didn't know much about football then. He, he loved boxing. So that was fun. And uh, I worked with Jamie Foxx. And then I had uh, – and then I worked some with Cameron Diaz. Um, and That was your favorite part of the movie. Well, I will tell you, I was married at the time. Not that there's cause and effect, but I do not come home to your wife looking all bedraggled because you just spent the evening putting <coughs> Cameron Diaz into role. <laughs> Did not play well. <laughs> your proudest moment in show business. Probably standing at the podium at the Hall of Fame in Canton giving Warren Moon's presenting speech in front of 40,000 people and being able to say that he not only was an extraordinary person, role model and player, but he was the first African-American quarterback in the modern era to enter the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So it was making history with a person I truly loved and so getting a player to be the first pick in the draft is a major uh, excitement in this business. Having a quarterback win the Super Bowl, which for four straight years I did, is a major excitement. Watching a player introduced in the uh, Hall of Fame is the penultimate achievement for the sport. And um, so there was that. And the other happiest moments have all been being out in the field watching, uh, attending charitable events. So back to Warren Moon, I was once at a banquet and he asked the people that had gotten scholarships from his Crescent Moon Foundation to be able to go to college to stand. And one by one, an entire room filled with hundreds of people stood. It was thrilling. And one young man said, you know, I'm a doctor now, and I didn't even think I'd be able to get into college. God bless Warren Moon. And then you understand that what we're doing is actually impacting and affecting people's lives. Um, and... Uh, leading to a nicer world we already know your biggest personal disappointment what's your biggest professional disappointment and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level <laughs> um my biggest professional well i've been able to do movies write books speak at all the clients you could ever have raised millions of dollars We've actually raised almost a billion dollars for charity. Um, oh, it'd be individual athletes that I didn't represent, okay? I got a call. I didn't know how it ended, but I got a call from Lance Armstrong, and uh, which I ignored, which was, this is at the very beginning, which is not smart. I went back and visited with LeBron James. Um, so there's certain athletes who, the more transcendent the athlete the better chance to make a world impact. So that I think that a Michael Jordan, a Tiger Woods, a um, 
LeBron James, if they chose to, could be international ambassadors who, because of their high recog name recognition, are stunning. So not having an athlete with that level of transcendent um, uh, uh, power. In other words, having the win of getting the meeting but not converting them to be a client. I can live with with the fact that it's unreasonable to think you're always going to click with everyone and not getting a client. But those, but my purpose in doing this is to try to work with athletes who can change the needle, move the needle. This is the last question. What advice do you have for the young person who's sitting on a lap somewhere at a card game growing up in an existence that isn't exactly pro-business and finding your way through college and not having that much money or anything like that to find your path and having the kind of career that you've had? And also, what advice do you have for the people who've hit rock bottom and how can they come back and get to the place where you are right now? To the latter, I think it's really critical to do a internal assessment of what is critically important to each person in the world so they can be true to that, not to be influenced by what someone else thinks is important. The quality when you get knocked down is resilience. Life will throw endless amounts of uh, challenges. And it's not so important that you get knocked down, but can you come back up? Can you understand that you're not, as I did, that I wasn't a starving peasant in Darfur, that I didn't have the last name Steinberg in Nazi Germany, that um, I was not... Uh, crippled or had cancer, can you get back your sense of perspective <laughs> that that um, so many people have it so much worse, and that that your skill set and talent can still come back? Can you reinvent yourself over and over again? Um, and then, do you have a vision for the world? Do you have a passion? Do you have a ethical, moral foundation internally? Okay, and so um, uh, and understand that human beings evolved in a way where um, we lived in twenty or thirty group um, caves <laughs> for years and years. We are social animals, and um, and if the person who's down, whose life seems cataclysmic, who can see nothing but despair and failure can just reach out to another person. Um, it's, um, that can lift. Now, as to your young person, um, study psychology, because everything you will do in life comes down to interactions between people. Even for the brilliant scientist who can come up with a way to launch a rocket to Mars or someone in biotech or someone in computer coding, at the end of the day, those are great skills, but it come down to the relationship with people. And the whole key to having a happy family life, to having a happy um, uh, 
professional life is listening. Can you listen? Can you get yourself to calm down, stop thinking about the next comment you're going to make, and really immerse yourself in the moment? My best advice is to understand that this moment that we're sharing together is every bit as critical as every other moment. And to be present, totally focused in each moment, to garner the text, the subtext, um, and stop being distracted. You know, stop bumping into walls and other people while you're staring at a cell phone that uh, is telling you really unimportant things. You know, sometimes I watch people out in the world with their cell phones, and I'm wondering, well, did war just break out, you know, in North Korea? Um, did their parent die? What is so critical that they're oblivious to their environment and the opportunity there and staring at a cell phone? You know, you want to think about this. What life are you waiting for? What incarnation are you waiting for to be open, you know, and honest? Um, it's uh, this is our one life. And um, um, even though Biomed is pretty good, it's probably not coming back again. This is our moment. Lee Steinberg, just completely awesome today. This Thank was you. one of the greatest times I've ever had. It was great having you. I know sitting down with me was like smoking a carton of cigarettes. You're not going to get that time back in your life, but I, <laughs> but I appreciate you being here. As always, this was another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message a review on the iTunes comment review section, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Joe from Tennessee, September 27th, 2017. The heading reads Career Protein Shake, five stars. Thank you, Joe. Let's see what it reads here. New addiction. It's like chugging a career protein shake. Barry may never be my representation but I feel like I'm at least getting the career consulting that would come with it. All right. Thank you so much, Joe from Tennessee. Much appreciated. You are a winner. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, with the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out of my
for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.